This is Raphael Pope Sussman with the Center for Court Innovation. This podcast is part of a series of dispatches from the Courts, Community Engagement, and Innovative Practices in a Changing Landscape Symposium held in Anaheim in December 2015. The conference focused on justice reforms, including recent developments in California, public safety realignment, and Proposition 47. Public safety realignment refers to changes brought about by 2011 legislation that shifted responsibility for certain populations of offenders from the state to the county level. Proposition 47, a ballot initiative passed by referendum in 2014, reclassified certain low-level felonies as misdemeanors. I hope you enjoy listening. Hi, this is Raphael Pope-Sussman with the Center for Court Innovation, and I'm here today at the Courts Community Engagement and Innovative Practices in the Changing Landscape Conference in Anaheim. Right now, I'm sitting down with Susan Turner, professor in the Department of Criminology, Law, and Society at the University of California, Irvine. Susan, thank you for speaking with me today, and welcome. Glad to be here. What is the process for developing a new risk assessment tool? Well, risk assessment tools can be developed by an organization, and there are also ones that are available that have been developed by others. So. Some of the first decisions that jurisdictions make is whether to do it homegrown or whether or not to buy something that's been developed and is available for purchase or perhaps free. But if you're interested in developing a risk tool for your jurisdiction, one of the first things you need to decide is what are you interested in predicting? And most jurisdictions in risk assessment are interested in predicting some kind of recidivism behavior such as arrest uh, or incarceration or conviction. And then uh, we generally use a, a set of variables that are related to uh, an offender's prior record, um, age or gender, and then some other factors that may be related to their drug use, mental health status, their association with criminal peers. And you basically need to make sure that you have the data for your left hand and your right hand side of the equation. And you gather the information on an individual level. So for every person you're interested in, you gather information on whatever outcome, and then their their record, their variables such as their gender and their age and the prior record. And you want to have a sample that's large enough, and you put them uh, generally in a, a regression equation where you try to figure out whether or not these factors are predictive, and you're able to gather weights for the variables based on these models. So for example, if you're predicting whether somebody would be convicted, you might have age and you'd have a weight of five, gender you'd have a weight of three, the different prior record variables would have various weights. And you can just imagine sort of scoring everybody up. And the higher the scores, generally, the more likely someone will recidivate. And once you do that on one half of your sample, you build your model. And then you do something called validation on a separate set of data that you haven't looked at before. And that tells you whether or not what you've developed on your first sample validates or is predictive on your second sample. And that's basically a kind of simplistic view, but the, the overall just is that you have data available, you develop your instrument on one half the sample and test it on the second. What are the limitations of these tools? Well, there's, there's a lot of good things about the tools, and, and there are, of course, always limitations with any kind of tool. Risk assessment for recidivism is like many other risk tools. We have risk tools in our, our regular lives. You think of your car insurance premiums that you pay are based on risk assessment tools. And so risk assessment tools are only as good as the data that are behind them, number one. Another limitation of risk assessment tools that we all need to be aware of is that they're never 100% accurate and probably will not ever be 100% accurate. They generally are when what's referred to as sort of a moderately good predictor. But because of the nature of human behavior and variables, 
that we don't know why people do the things we do. We never can gain 100% accuracy, which sometimes gets us into trouble with, say, politicians who have very high standards for whether or not you want to use an instrument, sometimes so high that they're really not practicable. And what are the great strengths? Great strengths are that we normally discuss risk assessment tools contrasted what we refer to as clinical judgment, or some people call it gut. And the uh, research has shown that actuarial tools or risk prediction instruments are more accurate than gut or, or clinical experience. Many people don't like to believe that because they're often trained in a clinical background or you can imagine a parole agent with 30 years of experience is sometimes looking askew at a risk assessment tool, but they're more accurate. Um, they can also result in, in decision-making that's more consistent because you can imagine the great variability if everyone follows their own gut. Uh, you can have lots of different ways the same person might be scored. So there's consistency. There is also, with some risk assessment tools, the advantage of time. Some of them are automated, and so for large numbers of people, they can be scored pretty quickly, allowing an agency to be able to get you know, actuarial tool on a number of offenders without the resources that may be required for, say, 45 to 50-minute instruments that are collected individually. What role do you see for risk assessment tools in the larger project of decarceration? Well, one of the things we talked about here today was sort of the use of risk assessment. And as one of the things I mentioned was that risk assessment has been around for a long time. And it's got a resurgence nowadays, I think, partly because we're trying to reduce the current populations that we have incarcerated, and we don't have enough money to be able to keep everyone locked up. And money's driving a lot of decisions, and one of them, I think, actually may be risk assessment. We need to decide who are the highest risk people. The ones that we need to devote our resources to are public safety resources, and to not spend the resources on the ones who are the lower risk. How do you ensure that risk tools don't show bias against individuals from communities that may have disproportionate rates of established risk factors like housing or employment instability? Very good question, and I think there are a number of people who are concerned with risk assessment tools based on dimensions that may impact certain groups unfairly. And you know, many risk assessment tools use an offender's prior record as a major variable in their recidivism outcomes. And then there's obviously the question, if prior records are somehow biased in their very creation in communities of color, what does that mean in terms of risk assessment tools? It's a very valid question. One of the ways that we help address this is when we develop tools, we take a look at see how well the tool works with the different populations of interest. For example, when we developed a tool for the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, we were particularly concerned about whether the tool predicted for females as well as males, because there's a lot of work suggesting that some of the risk factors for women are different than for men. And also, we were concerned about whether the risk tool worked equally well for blacks and Hispanics and whites and other groups. And so what we do with those is that we, we separate the samples into the groups of interest and check to see whether the tool is as predictive in each of the groups. And if you find a tool that doesn't work very well in one of the segments that you're interested in, then you need to go back to the drawing board. I've read that misdemeanor populations are particularly difficult to assess. Why is that? Well, the discussion of misdemeanor risk assessments has really come sort of into the, the light here in California with, with Prop 47. Traditionally, most of us deal with risk assessments in sort of the felony world, so that all the risk assessment tools I've done are pretty much predicting felony recidivism. And so there is a the question, are these tools good for misdemeanors? There are tools out there that have been developed for 
misdemeanors. There's a tool for misdemeanor DUIs and some tools that are developed by the University of Cincinnati team have established one that's for misdemeanors. They basically work the same as the felony tools. They're just they're predicting a different kind of an outcome, which is maybe a, a lower level behavior. But what we find with our risk tools is that these tools can be pretty robust to different populations and different kind of outcomes. Do you have any big vision going forward, the next step for risk assessment? Oh, well, one, one of the risk assessment is always, you know, it's been used pre-trial for a long time. It's been used in the last 20 or 30 years at the probation stage. I think more recently it's being considered at the sentencing stage, which I think in many ways has a little more ethical issues, whether or not in sentencing actually you're considering risk as opposed to the, the sentence type. What do you mean by ethical issues? Oh, I mean, I mean, what, what's the purpose of sentencing? And some people say, well, the purpose of sentencing is that it should be proportionate to the crime that was committed and that our statutes are based, the sentences are based on perceived severity of violent offenses being more serious than property offenses, and we reserve the highest sentence lengths for the more violent. If you move to a risk-based system and you say, well, as we found in our research, people convicted of violent crimes are not necessarily the most likely to reoffend. So you get basically a conflict going with, you know, what is a justice-based in terms of the offense versus a risk-based, which is about the future behavior. And so that's sort of a conflict that you've got to figure out how you're going to deal with. In our own development of the risk tool for the state, we've, in our training and discussion of the tool, we've come across people who are very perplexed by our findings that show that people who have convictions for violent offenses, there's actually what we refer to as negative weights on that. So the people with some violent offenses are actually less likely to have recidivism than those that don't, which is very counterintuitive. But I guess that would also get to people's ideas about what the justice system is supposed to do. Is it supposed to be punitive? Is it supposed to be rehabilitative? Is it supposed to be utilitarian? Yeah, I think it's back, and as I teach my students, a couple of things you have to remember. If you remember a couple of things when you go out after school, they'll be very helpful. One of them is to remember always the different purposes of punishment. Uh, one is deterrence, and that's what we think risk-based kind of decision-making is based on. But there's retribution and incapacitation. And so, yeah, there's many philosophies of what the goal of punishment is. And I think risk prediction sits you straight in the crosshairs of some of the other theories of punishment. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Thank you very much for the opportunity. This is Raphael Pope-Sussman of the Center for Court Innovation, and I've been speaking with Susan Turner, professor in the Department of Criminology, Law, and Society at the University of California, Irvine. For more information on the Center for Court Innovation, visit www.courtinnovation.org.